0: All right, so if you got your Bibles, open up. We're in Romans chapter six, Romans chapter six, and I'm gonna pray for our time in the word. Heavenly Father, we come before you now and we have our Bibles open and our hearts are open as well. And so Jesus, would you do a great work right now? Holy Spirit, have your way. Holy Spirit, you are the one that convicts. You are the one that transforms. You are the one that allows any good work to happen in our life. And so we are asking you, Please, change us. Have your way, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Absalom was one of King David's sons in the Old Testament. You might remember King David. He was one of the great, mighty kings of the Old Testament. Very flawed man, as every person you ever meet in the Bible is a flawed person. David had his issues, but he was also one of the greatest kings in the Old Testament. Known as a man after God's own heart. He had a number of kids. One of them was named Absalom. Absalom's story is most, notice, most noticeable for his later years before his ultimate death when he rebelled against his dad. You know, he had a tough childhood, he was, uh, and he got into a season when he was a young man where, you know, you, you try to judge some of the mistakes he made in his life, and it's tough because he had reasons for behaving poorly, he ended up murdering one of his own brothers, but the other brother was a real bad dude, and so you're not quite sure about this character Absalom. As a young man, King David, the the King David, takes his son and restores him into the kingdom. After all these mistakes he had made as a wayward son, David is willing to look past them. And he takes his son Absalom, and there's this great scene in 1 Samuel chapter 14 where David kisses his son. Now, I want you to understand what this is. This is not just, you know, the way I would kiss my daughter at home, just say, hey, I love you, sweetie, good night. This is a public demonstration of a king welcoming a wayward prince back into the kingdom. This is a visual for everyone to see. Absalom is welcome here. The king has made it official. He's no longer an outcast. Absalom goes through this process. He's visually, on the outside, done everything that he needs to do for a wayward son to be welcomed back into the kingdom. He's gotten the king's kiss. And now he's got freedom to go about the kingdom as he needs. What we find out is that while he went ahead with the process of participating in the kiss from the king. His heart was anywhere but in that place. Absalom would begin to uh, usurp his father's authority. Rather than doing what a good prince ought to do underneath his, the king's leadership, and which, what that is is to point other people to the king, to honor the king, and to know that he is not the king. Absalom sets himself up in the, the town square, the gate of Jerusalem, and he begins to stop people who are on their way to see King David. And he basically starts telling them, treat me like the king. I know you're going to see King David, but frankly, I could do a better job than he's doing, so let me just take care of the business here. Here he is, he's done everything he needs to do on the outside, and yet his heart is totally flawed. What he's after is to build his own kingdom. He's after making himself the king, and eventually, the cards fall. Eventually, this house of cards that Absalom is building, he, he rebels against his father, King David is forced to flee. It's the great downward moment of King David's ministry and kingdom, but eventually Absalom is overthrown, and his little kingdom that he tried to build for himself falls. When it comes to our relationship with God, there are many who would live in such a way where they outwardly try to go through the motions of making it look like you've done everything you need to do to be right with the king, right? Right? You've done all the outward expressions, all the outward motions, you do all the religious stuff, and everything that makes it look like you've got the kiss from the king. You're good. But inwardly, there's a heart that is in radical disobedience to the king, that is ultimately trying to establish their own kingdom where they're their own king. And here's the thing, you can fool a lot of people with that. You can fool me. You can become a member of the church and fool me doing that. But you can't fool God. God is able to see your heart And God is not after outward expressions only of religiosity. That's not what he's out there for you. He wants much more than that. He wants your whole heart. He wants your life to be consumed with a passion to live in obedience and submission to the one true king, not trying to make yourself a king and establishing your own law. And it's very easy to try to deceive even ourselves into thinking that we're doing everything the king wants us to do because we've done the outward religious part of it all. Meanwhile, our heart is very far from God. We're continuing this series through the book of Romans. What a wonderful series this has been. And as we've gone through Romans, we've kind of established one great claim, that a person is saved by grace through faith. That's how we get made right with God. There's nothing we can do to earn salvation. No one can follow the law good enough to earn salvation on their own behalf. So in one sense, you can stop trying to earn favor with God. You can't do it. We've fallen short. But, God showed his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ came to die for the ungodly. He died for us and he gave us new life. Now, the, a new question is being asked in Romans 6. And last week, sincer preached the first half of Romans 6. And the question is basically this, well, if, if I've been saved by grace, does that mean that grace covers me and I can pretty much live however I want? That's the big question of Romans 6. And the reality is, in Romans 6, is that no Christian should ever be cavalier about their sin. I want you to hear that very clearly. No Christian should ever live their life in a way that says, I really don't care about the sin in my life. I'm not that interested in actually being obedient to Jesus and his kingdom. To do that is to not understand the faith at all. It's to be completely outside of the kingdom altogether. Those who have been justified by faith will follow the commands of The king, it's as simple as that. You cannot just go through the outward motions of kissing the king and then make a life set on being disobedient to God overall. You can't be indifferent towards sin. You know, we hear that message a lot in our culture today. I'm saved by grace. I love Jesus. So basically, that's an excuse to do anything I want to do. I can live however I want to live. I can sleep with whoever I want to sleep with. I can live with whoever I want to live with. I can do whatever I feel like doing. And if ever you come across someone in your life who's saying that and they're using Jesus as an excuse to sin, I want you to remember this, Romans 6, Romans 6, that's what this chapter is about. It addresses that question directly. So today what I want to show you is this. When you believe in Jesus, there is a fundamental change in your life. You change. You, you were one person, and then you become another person. And those are two very distinct things. That's the answer to the question, should we keep sinning? No, you're someone totally new. And I want to show you how that takes place in three particular shifts that take place in each authentic follower of Christ's life. I'm going to show you three shifts from this text in Romans chapter 6, verses 15 through 23. Beginning in verse 15, the first shift that takes place in your life Is a shift in allegiance. A shift in allegiance. Walk with me, verse 15 and 16. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? Hear the question? That's exactly the question that I said this chapter is about. Are we to sin or keep on sinning since we are not under law but under grace? By no means. That's Paul's way of saying, that is a terrible question. (laughs) That's not a, get that question out of my face. That's what he's saying. Look at the exclamation point. By no means. You can't keep doing that. Do you not know that if you present yourself to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? Now, Paul starts with the question that I told you this chapter was about. Look, we're not under law anymore. What that means is you cannot earn favor with God by following all his law. All the laws in the Old Testament, if you fail at any of them, you're dead. You're you're on a pathway to hell. And Scripture has said all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Every single person failed. Therefore, to become right with God is not a matter of following the law. It's a matter of grace. Jesus shedding his blood for you. You receive it by faith. That means you're not saved by following the law. But that doesn't mean that you're free to then just go live as cavalier as you want. He says, if you present yourselves to anyone, you're a slave to that person. Now let's think about that language of presenting yourself. When he says present yourself, the image that's being brought to my mind is of someone presenting themselves to a king. Think about it. You've seen those movies before where you see a scene where there's a king sitting on his throne and someone comes in. Maybe it's someone from the kingdom or maybe it's, you know, an ambassador from another country and they walk into the palace and they're walking up and they're coming with their gift to present it to before the king. In that moment when you're presenting yourself before a king, you have no power, right? If you think about the scene, the one who has all the power is the king, You're there just presenting yourself. You're there with your head to the ground hoping that he doesn't take your life in that moment because he has every bit of power. Maybe you even come with a gift to try to make uh, appeasement for yourself on his behalf. He has all the power. Now he says, when you present yourself, we are presenting ourselves to one of two different directions. He says, do you not know that if you present yourself to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey, either of sin which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. He says there's two people in this world, two ways to live your life. You are either presenting yourself to the king of kings, to God himself, or you're presenting yourself to sin. And this path leads to death, and this path leads to life. Now, first cultural moment for the day, all right? Most people don't think this is how the world works. Even Christians Chris, even in this church, we tend to think of the world broken into three categories, not two. See, he breaks two categories. He says you're either presenting yourself to the king or you're presenting yourself to sin and Satan. Most of us don't see it that black and white, honestly. Most of us see the world in three categories. You've got the really good people over here, right? You've got the Mother Teresas, Right? These are the people, you know, Mother Teresa born into wealth, gives away everything she has, moves into Calcutta to save children's lives, right? It's like, okay, really, really good over here. And then over here, you've got like the Hitlers, okay, really, really bad genocidal maniacs over here. And most people tend to think of the world as, okay, really good over there, really bad over there, and then me and pretty much everyone else in the middle, right? I'm not Mother Teresa, and I I might never be Mother Teresa. I'm not selling everything I have tomorrow to move to Calcutta. But I'm also not a genocidal maniac. So I'm somewhere in this safe space. Pretty safe in the middle, isn't it? That's how we tend to think of the world. Not that good, not that bad, kind of like everybody else, so I play it safe. It should work out well for me in the end, right? Wrong. The scriptures do not affirm that there are three ways to live your life. The scriptures say there are two ways to live your life. You are either in full submission and obedience to the king or you're a rebel to the kingdom and in sin. There's only two. By the way, can I just tell you this? If ever you read all the people that you think are in this category over here, you, read, you, you try reading a biography on Mother Teresa one day. If you look at what she says about herself, she'd be the, she is the first person to admit she belongs in that category over there. When she evaluates her own heart and her sin and the, the, the thoughts that go through her mind and how she thinks she treats people, she doesn't put herself in this category. Here we all are over here thinking of all these great people, the Sauls of Paul of this world, right? Paul, Apostle Paul. What did he say? I'm the chief of sinners. That wasn't just him trying to be humble. He actually saw himself and lived as if he was the chief of sinners, So if we're over here standing in the middle thinking, well, we're not as good as them, recognize the people that you put in that category, they all thought they were sinners through and through. But secondly, and more importantly, there is no neutral. There's no middle lane. We are all presenting our lives with every decision we make, with every action we take, with every relationship we enter into, with every conversation we have and every thought we have. We're presenting ourselves to one of two different directions. There is no neutral. The Bible proclaims that we are either on a pathway to heaven through Jesus or on a pathway to hell through rebellion to the king. You can't kiss the king and go through the outward expression of pretending like you're in this camp while living a life of actually living in rebellion to the king on this side. Now, I want to make an interesting point here. If you read this text and you were just to read it clearly, right? Don't, don't present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves. Your slaves are the one whom you obey, either sin which leads to death, or of obedience which leads to righteousness. It seems very black and white, doesn't it? It's like okay, I'm reading that. I'm trying to understand how I should live my life, and it seems like there's bad decisions I can make that should be pretty clear. Don't do the bad stuff which is sin. Do the good stuff which leads to righteousness. Pretty easy, pretty clear. The problem is, in our day, 21st century, living in Chicago, big city life, those lines are blurred by the culture around us. And in fact, we live in a society which has flipped it all upside down, if you're listening carefully. To do the things that God says is good, in the eyes of the world, is actually to be bad. And to do the things that God says is bad, in the eyes of the world, is actually to be good. And so we live this very bizarre kind of life as Christians where you have to live counterculturally. You're looking at God's good, perfect, just, holy, righteous commands for your life. You're saying, I want to honor you because you're my king. I've made an allegiance shift. But the things that He tells you to do that are good will be looked at by the outside world as bad. That they'll say, that's wrong. That's actually the evil way to live your life. How could you live that way? How exclusionary do you want to be, Christian? And the Christian looks at the word of God and says, you know what, I'm going to go with God on this one, not culture. I'm going to stand because there's been a shift made. I live in allegiance to my king. Now here's the good news. 21st century Chicago is not the first topsy-turvy society that's ever existed. God's people have been living in that kind of society since the very beginning. This is the nature of what it means to be a follower of God. Let me go back to the Old Testament and draw a story for you. Think of Daniel in Babylon, right? Right? here's Daniel, if you know the story of Daniel, he was a young teenage kid, young teenage boy, probably 16, 17, maybe 18 years old. So picture this 18-year-old Daniel, he's faithful to God, he loves the God of the Bible, and he's captured as a slave and brought into Babylon. Now if you know anything about Babylon in the Old Testament, one, it was a historical nation, one of the greatest kingdoms in the entire history of histories, but two, it was a satanic kingdom. All through Scripture, we find out that the the name, the Spirit of Babylon, is applied to many different kingdoms when it's talking about the evils that pervaded various nations and kingdoms throughout history. The Spirit of Babylon means there was wickedness and there was a satanic influence behind what they did. The entire culture had been pervaded by sin and rebellion to God. Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, being the chief over all of it. He was the great idol of the day, the false god of his day. Now Daniel is trying to live a faithful life to God in the midst of Babylon. And here's the thing, much of the sin that was taking place around Daniel at that time was just normal everyday culture. So Daniel, chapter 1, finds himself in a situation. He's brought before the king. Nebuchadnezzar had a, a policy, an international policy, where he would bring in the great minds of all the nations and bring them into his inner court to try to learn from the nations around him. Daniel was one of those men. He finds himself in the presence of the king, and the king was known for throwing massive parties. Tons of wine, tons of food, tons of debauchery. It was everything that any young 18-year-old kid would want if they were found a slave in a foreign nation, right? Well, this is kind of, this is what everyone would want, basically, living large. Here, the problem with it was that these meals were literally an idolatry fest, It was almost the communion meal to Satan, is what it was. It was bread and wine offered to idols. And the king says to Nebuchadnezzar, come eat at my table with me. What an honor that must have been. To everybody else, it would have been an honor. But Daniel's looking out and he's he's saying, how do I live faithfully to God in this upside-down, topsy-turvy social structure where everything that I think is bad is good and celebrated? And he makes a very difficult decision. Just as a young man, what courage this kid had. young man says, "I am not going to defile myself by eating with the king." First, or in Daniel chapter one, Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And it's amazing what the, the chief of the eunuchs says. The chief of the eunuchs basically looks at Daniel and goes, "You're crazy. It's just food." Come eat the food. Everybody is eating the food. Why would you not eat the food? It's just wine. It's a party. Have a good time with us. Don't be, you know, don't be so, you know, uh, old-fashioned. And here's Daniel saying, no, I'm not going to do that. I serve the king. Is there a way that I can honor the king and eat my own food during this time? Daniel's a great example for us. As we live our lives, you come across countless examples every day of your life where you have to demonstrate in your life that there's been a new allegiance shift. You're not out there to just do what everyone else does, Christian. There's newness about you and it actually should reflect itself in some of the decisions that you're making, just like Daniel. There will be plenty of situations. In fact, I'm guessing you have examples in your mind of situations with your coworkers, with your friends, the stuff you do throughout the week and during the weekends, where they would say, your friends, your coworkers would say, it's just a drink, it's just a club, it's just a fill in the blank. But just like Daniel, you say, wait a second, wait a second, wait a second. My allegiance is not to trying to figure out how do I go through this life and have a good time. My allegiance is to the king. And I want to present myself in thought and action into the new life I've been called to. We have an allegiance shift. You will be asked to give an account for the decisions you make. And as a follower of Christ, you've been rescued not to live how you once lived, but to live underneath your new allegiance. Number two, We have a shift. So, first, number one is we have a shift in allegiance. Number two, we have a shift in our standard. There's a shift in standard of what we understand to be right and wrong. Read 17 through 19 with me. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. Hear the language there to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. That's Paul's way of saying, if you're asking why I'm bringing up the language of slavery, it's not because it's the exact right word, but because it's a human word that kind of captures the idea of what it means to be a slave to sin or a slave to God. It's, It's getting close. Now, when we read this with our 21st century ears... We've talked about slavery already a number of times through the study of Romans. Don't think American slavery. That's an abomination to the Lord. It's written all through Scripture. Everything about that has nothing to do with what this is talking about. Slavery in the New Testament and in the Old Testament, when you see that word, it was bond servitude. It was where a person would usually willingly commit themselves to another family for the purposes of food and provision for a short season of time, and basically bond themselves to another person in order to receive wages, a decent living, and a safe place to live had they fallen into difficult circumstances in their life. He says, look, you've become slaves, a bondservant in that, to righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. Now, first of all, I love how he starts that section. We're talking about having a new standard of right and wrong. And he begins by talking about your heart. You see that language? He says, having become obedient from the heart. But before the New Testament, before Jesus came, when God tried to get obedience from you, the Old Testament model was, here's the laws, obey. And we realize, when you look at the prophets, when you look at what Jesus taught, that no one could live up to that, but now something new has happened. God's given you the Holy Spirit to live inside of you, and he changes your heart. Literally, he he makes you sensitive to the things of God over the long haul of being a follower of Christ. Christ. There's an obedience from the heart. It's not just, here's how you ought to live. If if you only heard the first third of my sermon today, what you would hear would be, here's law. You have a new king, so live like it. But actually, the story is more thorough than that. God gives you the strength to understand and be sensitive to his law from the inside out. Now, every Christian who's been a Christian for a season of time, perhaps a few years at least, can tell you that that is exactly the case. The Holy Spirit has a way in a Christian's life of making you sensitive and changed to things that you used to not be sensitive to and things you used to not believe. For example, there are doctrines in the Christian faith that if you look back in the early years of your faith, perhaps you had a really hard time believing. Let me give you an example of one for me. Even when I was studying to be a pastor, the doctrine of hell was always difficult for me. I I just, I, I, I read it, I got it, I understood it, but I had a resistance to it. And over the long course of being a follower of Christ and reading and studying and saying, God, I know that I'm not God. I don't know everything. You know everything. I don't. I'm trying to figure this thing out. What God does is he he makes you sensitive to the things of God and he brings you into alignment with why he's designed the world he has and, and how his doctrines are good and true and right. And he begins to change you. Many of you look back over things in your life that you used to not care about, things that you thought were okay to do or behaviors you thought were okay to do, and and you look now and you realize God's changed me from who I was. It's no longer the same that I once was in the heart that I used to have. God changes you from the heart, not just from the law. It's the heart. But then he uses this language, the standard of teaching. He's talking about the entirety of the whole Bible and everything that is commanded of God that we follow, the Old and the New Testament. God's moral law for us has not changed. Even the Old Testament moral law of how we're supposed to live and what is right and wrong, we will be held accountable to living out God's moral commands for our life. He says every single person has been given the law, and we have a standard. We actually know what right and wrong is, not because we're trying to hit some moving goalpost. You know, it's not constantly changing. God's written it, he's declared it, and it's good for us. And the opposite of that is lawlessness. Listen to that language. We're not in lawlessness which leads to lawlessness. You know, you ever look at someone who's got their life in a, in a mess, and, and you see the, the knots that are there, and you're trying to unravel it, and you, you see a life where it was one bit of lawlessness that led to another bit of lawlessness that led to another bit of lawlessness. Sin builds sin. I got three little girls. And I learned how to parent from the Bible, and I learned from other people who have gone before me. And so the things that I do to discipline and correct my children are from much wiser people who have gone before me. But when my little girls, I'll pick on Mira, my littlest one. Mira disobeyed me most recently last night, so I got a good example to give. Little Mira does something where she disobeys her dad. And she comes, and I call her, I say, I say, Mira, get over here. I'll say to her, sweetheart, what's your job? And she'll say, she's four years old. She'll say, to listen and obey dad. And I'll say, you're right. That's your job. And the reason for that, Mira, is because Ephesians 6 says, children, listen and obey your parents so that it will go well with you and you might live long in the land. <laughs> right? She's four, okay? That's <laughs> training four years old, four-year-olds upright, right? But here's what I'm saying. To, here's what I'm saying to my daughter. I'm saying, sweetheart, If you don't listen to me, it's not gonna go well for you. If you become a disobedient child, not only is it gonna cause you pain right now, that is not going to give fruit in your life down the road. It's gonna be a very hard life, and I'm here now to protect you from that. I want it to go well with you, and for you to live long in the land, and right now your job's to listen and obey me. My rules are good. Don't eat the cookies, it'll give you a tummy ache. You want the cookies, don't eat the cookie. You listen to me. I'm smarter than you, right? And then I look at them and I say this, what's my job? Every time I do this, what's your job? Then I say, what's my job? And she'll look at me and she says, to listen and obey Jesus. I say, that's right. We all listen and obey somebody. And it's the same principle. My good heavenly father, when I want the cookies, says, Rafe. Don't eat the cookies. The cookies are going to give you a tummy ache. I'm trying to help you here. And so I submit to my father's will. And guess what? When I break it, he disciplines me. Just like I discipline my children when they break my desire, my will. When they go ahead and they eat the cookies or they do what I tell them not to do and they're looking at me stubbornly and I give them a chance to repent and then they go over there and they just take a cookie in disobedience, they're going to get disciplined. And you know what? Our heavenly father does the same thing to us. That's Hebrews. Hebrews our Heavenly Father, out of love and compassion and a desire to see you brought back into the good life. What God has given us disciplines you. And some of you are in discipline right now. And if you're wondering why there's hardship, this is not always the case, not all hardship in life is discipline. But sometimes God's been giving you a whole lot of stop signs in life. He's been saying, stop, stop. Here's a sermon, I'm telling you to stop. And then you blow right through it. And then eventually you get to a place where God's loving discipline comes in. And I'll tell you what, spanks hurt. (laughs) That's, That's what a spank feels like, it hurts. And when you get one from the Father, the Heavenly Father, it doesn't feel good. But if you look back on your life, it's when the Father disciplines you that you find the most correction in your life. You might be in a season right now where you're having some hard stuff. Even sickness sometimes, Scripture says, can be a discipline from the Lord. You've got to go before the Lord and say, "Lord, have I had a shift in like what? Has there been a new standard in my life set by you, where you are determining what is right and true and good, or am I lawless? Am I autonomous? That word autonomous it means self law. Auto is self, nomos is law. The Greek term for law. Autonomous. Am I an autonomous person trying to establish my own law? Am I a theonomous person, God's law in my life? But but look at what he says, and I I I just tried to scroll my Bible. That's not going to work. Look at what he says here. I love it. He says you're not slaves slaves to sin. You're slaves to righteousness. I love how Nate Gehring, our music director, the guy up here who's singing on the guitar today, how he put it this week to me. He said, "Rafe, you know, sometimes in the Christian life we talk about sin, and and sermons like Romans 6 can come off this way. Just avoid sin." This is what the fullness of the Christian life is. Stop doing sin. Stop that. Stop that. Don't touch that. Don't do that. Don't look at that. Don't do that. And so the Christian life becomes essentially slavery to sin again, where all you see is all the stuff you can't do. Now, I want to make sure you understand, we must weed sin out of our life. But we're not called to be slaves to sin. We're called to be slaves to righteousness, See, what Jesus did, and and Nate said this so well this week, I'm going to try my best to repeat it, but he said, look, Jesus didn't go around thinking all the stuff he couldn't do and couldn't touch. Certainly, he knew those things, and he was aware, and he lived into those things, and he avoided them, but he also knew what he was supposed to be doing. He was living out righteousness. Where he went, he brought the kingdom of God, he he loved people, he healed people, he prayed for people, he stepped into brokenness, and everywhere he went, his his lead foot was bringing righteousness with him. See, that's what it means to be a slave of righteousness. If your version of Christianity is, what are all the things I can't do, you're a slave to sin still. You're a slave to it. But if your version of Christianity is I've been made a slave to God, obedience through righteousness, what are all the things God's called me to do, and I want to run full speed into that, then you're a slave to obedience and righteousness. And that builds up in your life. All right, you have a new standard. There's a new standard. And as Christians, we've got to be going back to God's word. What is God's call of morality in my life? And check ourselves. Last one, I'll finish on this. There's a new type of fruit in your life. A new type of fruit. Let's read this the end of Romans 6 together. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? I love that verse. For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. Now, Paul invites us for just a moment to consider our former life. Remember, there's two camps. And if you're a follower of Christ, there was once a time in your life when you were obedient to sin, and this was the kingdom you were living in. But now you've been changed, and God's done something in your life, and you're obedient to Christ, and you're living in this kingdom. He says, look back for a moment at that former life you lived. Was there any fruit to be had there? Now, if you've got people in your life you know that are not followers of Christ, and you're looking at their life, and you're looking at the sin that they're involved in, and you're thinking, man, I wish you just had eyes to see how much damage and death you're bringing into your life. They don't oftentimes see it, do they? Because when you're in sin, and when when your master is sin, it feels good and right, and it feels like you're living the good life when you're in sin. But as a follower of Christ, we look back on those old days of our life, and you see the scars that, that you had, and in some ways you're ashamed of it. Not shame in the sense that God wants you to live with a shame, just constantly carrying shame around. God, God clears you of your shame. You know, the blood of, the, of Christ is that good. It takes away shame. You don't carry that shame with you anymore if you're in Christ from the mistakes you made. Hallelujah, I need that. But it, you do look back and you go, what was I thinking? I thought that would give me life. And as a Christian, that's a very real reminder for you that there is a way to live your life that leads to death, and it can be deceptive and make you think that it can lead to life. And can I tell you, it's not just your former life before Christ. I remember even days when I was a newer Christian and not confident in my faith, where I was very embarrassed about my faith or didn't know how to handle my faith. And I look back on some of the decisions I was making then, especially in my early years of Christianity, and I go, man, I was, I, there were so many scars that I was causing in people's lives and in my own because of the decisions I was making back then. Sometimes what we can do is if we're very insecure about our Christian faith, we can allow everyone else to end up shaping our identity to such a way that what we're trying to do is just please everybody around us. And then we make these decisions where we're like, okay, I know it's not exactly what God would do, but it's what they would have me do. And so I'm just going to kind of blend in. And what we end up doing is finding our identity in how other people are treating us but as christians if we find our identity in anyone other than god see god's the one that approves of you in christ he's the one who looks down and says you're ev- I- i've done everything that could ever be done to make sure that you are made new in me. You're fully you. And I've given you my spirit. I fully forgive you every bit you need in this life to overcome sin and temptation. It's all been given you by the Holy Spirit. It's all in your life. And your identity is wrapped up in your new allegiance to the king. You're a son and a daughter of the king. You're not trying to find your identity over here. But so much of the mistakes and the sin we bring into the church is because we're still trying to find identity in some way, by managing relationships in this world. And we're ashamed to actually proclaim the kingdom we belong to. Trying to show that you're strong enough, you're pretty enough, you're smart enough, you're wealthy enough, you're capable enough, you're creative enough. Man, it's exhausting reading that list, let alone trying to live that way. God's done something powerful in your life. He set you free from that. Look at this, but what fruit were you getting But now that you, verse 22, you have been set free from that life. You've been set free from sin. Notice it doesn't say you set yourself free. It doesn't say you realized how much of a fool you were for living in there and how many scars were in your life as a result of those choices. And then you made a good decision. You stepped out of it. That's not it. No. You were set free by somebody. He plucked you out of death. He sent his son to die for you on the cross. He shed his blood. That's the only way. Jesus' blood being shed on the cross is the only way that you could get out of that life that was going towards death. And he plucked you out and he gave you a new life. See, it's only when you realize how depraved and broken you were in that place of sin that the gospel of Jesus Christ begins to actually look like a powerful, beautiful thing. When you realize you could not have gotten yourself out on your own And now the fruit that you have in your life actually leads to life. I get to have a lot of conversations with people around my dinner table. As a pastor, my wife and I love having people over to our dinner table. And and often I have the chance to call people out on sin. It's one of the joys of my life that I get to call them out. And can I tell you just a quick note? That's not just me that should be doing that in each other's life. If you're a Christian, you should be calling people out on their sin. Don't put that on me, all right? That's all you get to share that burden with me. However, one of the more common ones, I love when I get young couples around my dinner table that are not married yet and living together. This is a very common situation that happens. Maybe they're coming over to my house because they're going to ask me to do their wedding for them. And I get to sit down at the table and I get to say, you know you're in sin, right? Because you're not married and you're living together. And you get to watch their eyes go, oh, I can't believe you said it. And then I'll say, you, you, you didn't think I was going to bring it up? I'm a pastor. What do you think we're talking about here? Now, here's the thing. I love when I watch these couples at first struggle with the reality that they've been confronted on their sin. The first thing that... and. By the way, that's a number of you guys in this room are these conversations I've had. I love you. I'm your pastor. This is the church, right? Good place to talk about this. First thing they do is they go this every time. It's too expensive to have two apartments. And I'll go, I'll pay for the rent. And then, or something like that, right? And then they'll say, ah, but uh, I can't find a, I don't know where I live. I can't find a place. And i will say, I'll find you a place. I got people in this, house, in this church who have extra rooms and they've told me in this situation they'll put somebody up. And then they're sitting there and they're out of excuses. <laughs> and they're sitting there with the reality of their sin and they've got to make a choice. What am I going to do? And can I tell you, I've watched the fruit. I'm seven for eight. I've lost one couple. Every time this happens, my wife and I look at each other after this meal and we go, they're not going to come back to church. They're gone. And you know what? I'm seven for eight. They come back and they move out. And I get to watch over the next few years the fruit that comes in that marriage as a result of that choice. Choosing to live unlike everybody else. Who does that? Christians do that. Why would you do that? Because Jesus said you should. Easy as that. He is the king, He gets my full submission. And we get the fruit. I'm watching marriages right now. I can tell you a handful of them. I'm looking at you in the room right now. I'm watching these marriages, and I'm saying, I never would have thought when I knew you guys were living together that I'd be thinking about you for eldership in this church. But right now, you're top of my list. Because it's amazing what God's doing in your life. And it started because you were obedient to the king. And there's fruit to be had in obedience to the king. Church, this is what the Christian life looks like. Hard decisions. You don't just coast through the Christian life and then get to the gates of heaven. You're not going to find that life in this book. All right? You're going to find a lot of churches that might tell you that's what it is. But the whole point of this passage, he starts out by saying if your plan is to coast and just keep living the way you were, that's not Christianity. The Christian life is a series of hard decisions where you turn from who you were, and what you were doing, and how you were living, and choose to live for God instead, and can I just tell you, look, non-believers have to make these kind of choices too, they're just not doing it for the king, and they're not getting the fruit we get out of it, everyone makes hard choices in life, everyone changes their life, you reflect on life, you look back, you say, look, it wasn't good, I'm going to do something new, The difference is when a Christian does it, you're filled by the Holy Spirit, empowered by God, and then you get kingdom fruit. You actually become like Jesus. You want me to read the fruit with you? The fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end eternal life. How about that for some fruit? I want some of that in my life. I want eternal life in my life. Who doesn't want that? But it's got to be set in obedience to the king. Otherwise, the shift has never been made. What in your life is God telling you today? Be done with it. Wipe the dust off the bottom of your feet and move forward. I've given you 20 stop signs and now I gave you a sermon. <laughs> so move on. You've been given a community. It's called repentance. Here's what you do. You fall on your knees in weeping before the king of kings, hating the sin in your life. If you can't weep over it, you're not, I don't think you know what it is yet. You fall on your knees in weeping before the king of kings, and you hold your hand out like this, you say, God, you said that I would be a work in progress, but that I would overcome sin in my life. Will you change me? I'm so tired of living for the world, I want to live for the king. And then guess what he does? He changes you. It's what he does. It's a long process. Sometimes it doesn't happen just like that, but he does it. Every Christian can look back and say he does it. And we're in each other's lives for it. I want to ask you, what are you being called to move forward from today? What have you been dragging on for far too long? You've got everything you need as a follower of Christ to begin living into the new fruit you were created for. When you accept Christ, there's a whole change in you. It's an entire new shift. It's a new allegiance. It's a new standard of right and wrong, and it's entirely new fruit. Amen? Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your scriptures. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your Holy Spirit. I pray for power in this room right now. Holy Spirit, anywhere where there is a turning, anywhere where there is a mind that's just quietly between you and them and you and God right now, working through sins, realizing that, God, you're speaking directly to them, I pray for a shattering of sins in life. I pray for a new obedience and new fruit in this room today. Have your way with us as we go out from here. Give us your grace. God, we need your grace because we are sinners. Without your grace, we're still dead in our sins. But with grace... We have everything we need to achieve this. We pray this all in Jesus' holy name. Amen.